It's midnight, August 6, 1988. Police have been ordered to clear Tompkins Square Park on the Lower East Side. They are enforcing a 1 a.m. curfew, and hundreds of people have shown up to protest. A young man stands on top of a car, holding a camera and filming the scene. There's an NYPD officer at the foot of the car. He looks to be in his early 20s, has a white grin and mustache. He charges and swings his nightstick from left to right, his elbow in snapped motion, then back right to left. Give me a chance! I didn't do anything! Give me a chance! Five more cops gather around the car. Their hands and nightsticks poke out from the corner of the lens. The photographer jumps off the car to the ground. Suddenly, the video is gone. There's just static. The photographer was beaten badly by officers as his camera rolled on. He was just one of dozens of people, reporters and protesters, beaten by the cops that night. In the following 24 hours, citizens would file 121 complaints against the cops. At first, city officials were not very sympathetic to cries of police brutality during the Sunday morning riot in Tompkins Square Park. But that has changed now that the mayor and police commissioner have seen some home videos of what happened. Dave Browdy reports. There is some behavior that was captured on tape uh, that I think the individual officers that are involved are going to have some great difficulty explaining why they were using the amount of force that they were using at that particular time. Against the, the, the violent clash between the police and protesters would come to be known as the Topkin Square Park police riot. So we wanted to know, why did the police respond with such brutal force? I'm Lena Fansa. And I'm Yu Chen Li. This is Shoe Leather, an investigative podcast that digs up stories from New York City's past to find out how yesterday's news affects us today. This season, we go back to 1988 and the Lower East Side of Manhattan. The area was filled with music, art, and anarchists. They were young, wild, and free. And not willing to follow anyone's rules. Not even the cops. Ralph Grosso was there that night, a rookie officer, and one of the cops winning his nightstick. I didn't do anything wrong. I and went through the process and uh, I was found guilty of something. This is Shoe Leather Season 4. It's our fucking park. And you're listening to 1085. I'm here facing the bridge in the parking lot. Where are you standing? I go to Queens to meet Ralph Grasso on a Wednesday in March. He tells me to meet him at the parking lot in Astoria Park. And after a few minutes of waiting, I see a large man approach me. I know it's him by the way he walks and carries himself. It's just like a cop. Ralph is wearing dark washed jeans and a gray fleece, tight enough to show the silhouette of his biceps. At 57 years old, he still bodybuilds and wants others to know it. When he walks up to me, he asks for my ID. I crack a joke about my old hairstyle in the picture. He laughs and then takes off his beanie to reveal his bright bald head. I don't have hair now, but back then I had uh, plenty of blonde hair, so they. I was built big and they would call me He-Man. Fabulous secret powers were revealed to me the day I held a lot He-Man was a cartoon character superhero with protruding muscles, a 16-pack and blonde hair, popular back in the 80s. 
Like He-Man, Ralph Grasso also wanted to fight evil. Yeah, I wanted to make, I mean, it's a cliche thing, I wanted to make a difference, but I wanted to move up. I didn't want to just be, I just didn't want to just be a police officer. I knew I had some sort of gift. He knew he was destined to be a cop. His father made sure of that. Well, my father would come home with many applications, put them in front of me, and would tell me, fill them out. Because there's only two ways you're going to go. You're going to become something with, you know, that has a pension and a career, or I see you getting in trouble. So. And in the summer of 1987, Ralph made his way to the NYPD. He was 21 years old. But the first day I wore that uniform for graduation, um, that's going to actually get me emotional. Uh, just to see the look in uh, my parents' eyes, like, you know, it's like success. He tears up, looks away from me, and presses his thumb into his eye. I took the ownership of that uniform seriously. I took it as I'm representing not only NYPD, but I represented the city, I represented my family, I represented myself. He remembers his first day in the line of duty. He walked into the office and met his supervisor, an old-timer. And he said, he said, hey, how'd you get here today? And I was like, ah, oh, I drove my car. He's like, you drove your car with, with your shirt on? With his police shirt on, meaning he'd driven to work wearing his uniform, something cops weren't supposed to do back then. It just invited trouble. Remember, this is a, this is a time that was, uh, it was busy. What Ralph means by busy is a lot of crime. Rapes, murders, assaults. New York was in the middle of a crime wave. This is how he described it to me and Yu Chen when we both sat down with him for another interview. It was a, it was a shithole. It was dirty. Like it's like nobody cared. It's like really like nobody cared. Did you care? Of course I cared. That's why I took the job. The job he dedicated himself to for more than thirty years. Then I knew this is where I belonged. Um, if I could do it all over again, from day one, it would be the same. Ralph would say those words again, that he wouldn't change a thing, not even on the night that he put his job, his future, and his freedom on the line. To understand what happened on the night of the Tompkins Square Park police riot, you have to understand the tensions that had been building for decades in New York, between the police and the public. And a lot of that story starts in the 1960s. Anti-war demonstrators protest U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. In mass marches... The anti-war movement raged across the country, and mass protests were common in New York City. The estimated 125,000 Manhattan marchers include students, housewives, beatnik poets, doctors, businessmen, teachers, priests, and nuns. And sometimes those protests turn destructive. Before the parade, mass draft card burning was urged. Demonstrators claimed 200 cards were burned but no accurate count could be determined. Although mostly peaceful, shouted confrontations were frequent and fiery during the course of the march. They became quite prevalent, and it was a lot of riot response and control that the NYPD engaged in throughout the 1960s. That's John Monaghan. He's a former NYPD captain. He served for two decades in the department. Nowadays, he testifies as an expert in police procedure. That changed, 1970s, didn't see as much of that. The anti-war protests had ended, and large-scale riots and protests had ended. 
What started instead was a fiscal crisis in the city. Basically, New York was broke, and to help cut costs, the city laid off five thousand cops. From July 1975 until November 1979, no police officers were hired or trained in the city of New York. They didn't rehire police until the early 1980s. They were very short-handed, and crime had gone bad, so they began to hire、uh, to rebuild it back to the place where it needed to be. And from 1980 to 1988, they re-outfitted almost half of the department. They hired 17 to 18 thousand cops in that period of time. That meant lots of new cops with pretty much no experience. Rookies working with other rookies. It also meant there was a growing number of civilian complaints and police brutality. Almost every week in that era, there were community protests about police behavior. I mean, Howard French is a professor at Columbia Journalism School. He covered New York City local news in the 80s. And it was certainly not uncommon to find instances where. Um, the police behaved with a lot of aggressiveness and sometimes brutality toward protesters. The police took a,、um, a sort of almost sometimes quasi-military approach to handling what they saw as civilian unrest. Then, in early 1988, tensions escalated even more. One day in February of that year, Edward Byrne was sitting in his police car in Queens. He was 22 years old. And a rookie with the NYPD, he was working a drug case and protecting a witness. That's when someone approached his vehicle and shot him five times, killing him. Thousands of police officers attended his funeral. Fast son Eddie, sitting in a police car, representing and protecting us, can be wasted. By scum, and none of us is safe. The NYPD was livid. They vowed to come down even harder on what they blamed for Burns' murder, which was the all-out drug war that was consuming New York in the 80s. Some people call it the largest crack house in the city. It's five blocks of projects, drugs, and crime. It's a place that even frightens cops. I get scared, but I have to do my job as a police officer. The officers say they like many of the people here. Crack was a drug of choice, a derivative of cocaine. It hits the bloodstream in seconds, and the city and the police were losing the war against it, especially on the Lower East Side. In an editorial in New York Amsterdam News in the summer of 1988. Wilbert Tatum described the East Village as teeming with people who were buying and selling crack. It's 5 a.m. in the East Village, Tatum wrote. At this moment, there are hundreds of them, and no attempt is being made to hide their commerce. People are defecating between the dumpsters that are filled with raw garbage and rotting food that gives the neighborhood the smell of death. So that's the backdrop to what happened later that year, in August of 1988. Decades of clashes between the police and the public, accusations of police brutality, a raging drug war, the murder of a police officer, an agitated police department filled with inexperienced cops. So what you had on that night in August of 1988 were police officers with no experience regarding protests and riots. 
Officer Ralph Russell would be one of those cops. It was a soaking hot night on August 6, 1988. Ralph Grasso was on the Manhattan North Task Force. He and some other officers were trying to keep things calm in Harlem, where there was a blackout. Now we're dealing with a blackout from 111th Street to 116th Street. And we're putting out lights to try to light it up, prevent looting, keep everybody safe. Apparently it's working In the meantime, there were also on standby for growing tensions at Tompkins Square Park which had been brewing for over a week. Maybe two, three nights in a row, they said, oh, we're on alert again for Tompkins Square Park. Ed Patterson joined the NYPD in 1982, when he was 20 years old. He also worked with the Manhattan North Task Force, Ruff's same unit. He was also on duty that night. Alert just means, listen up, you may be, you may be going somewhere tonight. We didn't think we were ever going to go down there, because I told us we were on alert for a couple of nights before that. The usual shift was from 6 p.m. to 2 a.m., it was already midnight. We were kind of hoping, like, you know, hopefully we didn't get called because we just wanted to do our tour and go home that night and get and get out of there. Uh, a lot of guys that night were like, shit, I'm tired, man. It was a long night last night. We worked till the hours in the morning. But the night was about to get longer when a signal code came through the radio transmission. So I don't think any of us even knew, like, what, what the hell was going on. Ralph remembers it, too. Uh, we got a call to go down to Manhattan South that there was a disturbance and it was time to square park. The code was a 1085 forthwith, meaning need additional units ASAP. The after action report shows the call happened at 12.52 a.m. It was from Captain Gerald McNamara, the commanding officer of the region. He requested responses from Manhattan North and Brooklyn North task forces. Two hours later, Captain McNamara made another call. All remaining borough task force units requested to respond. Ruff Russell and Ed Patterson were among the 400 officers who made their way down to the Lower East Side. And uh, we had to respond because the Manhattan South task force at the time, I think, was dealing with, with a, a large crowd, uh, you know. So we went down there and uh, they were right. Paul Dorenzio was an activist and citizen journalist back then. He documented that night by narrating what he saw into his tape recorder. We've been pushed down to East 9th Street. There's police now in the street. A large number of undercover police wearing helmets. I don't think any of our guys realized how big of a thing this was ever going to be because uh, a, a buddy of ours that used to work in our command was now in a citywide unit and he was there and he worked in Brooklyn. And I never forget, I said to him, I go, what are you doing here? And he goes, they're bringing guys in from the Rockaways for this thing. And I was like, holy shit, I didn't realize like how big it was, whatever. When we pulled up that night, it just seemed like the shit hit the fan right away. We want the park! We want the park! What Ed means is that protesters weren't leaving the park without a fight. They saw the city's new 1 a.m. curfew to clear the park as the final straw in a long battle over gentrification in the Lower East Side. So they were ready for the cops.
Usually when we'd go to mobilizations or a demonstration or a protest, it would be, okay, report to the street. Okay, and it would be like orderly. But Ed says the situation at the park was anything but orderly. When we first got down there, I don't think too many guys really even knew right off the bat what our assignment was because it was so freaking crazy. Here's Ralph again. They're throwing jars of piss off roofs at us, um, bottles, bricks. You know, this, this is all the stuff that's happening while we're trying to gain control. And the shit just started coming at us. It was almost like the, they, they seen us the minute we got out of the cars. I remember a rock hitting one of the guys next to me. Burnt cars, flattened tires, uh, people just in your face. And it just seemed like it escalated from that point. It very clearly just cleared the corners. How we were told, you know, get them off the corners, get them off the corners. And that's what we did. And that's what happened. <laughs> Here come the police. They're now coming across the street. They're coming across the street. They have their clubs out. They're attacking the crowd. I remember when the horses came down, they started saying uh, uh, we were like the Gestapo or something like that, they said. Um, oh, here comes the Gestapo, which you could hear the horses galloping, coming down the street and stuff. I'll tell you the truth, it made me feel pretty good when I seen those horses coming behind me because it was a hot night. Uh, a lot of us were getting tired. It was um, it, 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 like after a while, I think even guys I work with were like, oh man, I wish this would just like wrap up soon. You know, we were taught to move the crowd back, you know, um, a forceful way because this is, this is what the orders were. Clear, you know, clear the area, clear the park. And that's, that's what we were told to do. And then I noticed some streets where we'd go in, people were, would refuse to move. So, you'd, you know, you'd push them back a little bit. Uh, when I say push them back, I mean like a tab or whatever, you know, nothing. Again, this was the guys that I was with. Me, myself that night, uh -huh. I, 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 I was pushing them back, if that's what you meant. Like, sure, I don't think any cop that was down there early enough. I mean, um, especially when they were refusing to move off the streets and you were getting bricks and bottles thrown at you. Hands? Ed held out his two hands in front of the steering wheel of his car. That's where we interviewed him. Either with two hands or uh, if you had your nightstick out, you gently, there was a way you would hold it like this and just, I don't mean, I don't mean like this, I mean I just like push back. His fists were clenched as if holding onto the stick to demonstrate how officers are taught to clear the corners. Ed says he didn't run into any physical conflict that night. None of his team members did. But that wasn't the case for Ralph Grasso, based on what we read. Paul DiRinzio wasn't the only one documenting what happened that night. One officer chased after my direction without, as I yelled, I'm a media, I'm a media person, I'm a media person. He still ran after me in a, in a rage almost. Other witnesses with handheld video cameras were there, like Clayton Patterson. He's an artist and videographer. 
He captured three and a half hours of footage that night. A news lady, a press lady, got hit in the head with a nightstick by a police officers. I'm a witness. I seen it. Whoever engineered this action is insane. This is not the way to deal with this type of. These are the people that live in the park. So where are you going to chase them to? You are the people who have studied crowd control. This has been this has been out of control. Community leaders, priests, men and women. Step in to try to negotiate. We've been aware that there's been really no dialogue, and it's just been a lot of people just blindly fighting each other. Do we have a voice? Let me ask you, officer. Do we have a voice in whether the park is closed or not? Do we have a voice in that? I'm not a radical person. No, I realize that. I realize that. We're working on a deal to end this right now. But some of the crowd was hard to pacify that night. They didn't come to negotiate. Tensions had already spiraled out of control. I know there's people there that, that want to keep this thing escalating. Nobody throw a bottle. But the damage was done. Nightsticks were raised high enough for the crowds to see, and blood was spilt. By daybreak, it would almost be over. The curfew had ended. The after-action report reads, 5.45 a.m., the sun began to rise, and the park reopened to the public. 6 a.m., task force personnel were dismissed. 30 minutes later, all other units were dismissed. I think I remember sitting down, like almost like right inside the gates of the park, and thinking to myself, oh shit, this is Tompkins Square Park, because it seemed like we weren't even in there when we first got down there. And we were just kind of finally chilling out a little bit. You know, we were finally like, all right, let's let's go sit down, man. You know, let's go sit down in this park that we just threw everybody out of. And I'm not making fun of it. Like, I'm not trying to make, we were just exhausted. You know what I mean? We were shot. I mean, it was a long night. But what came next would leave a stain on the NYPD. Today, both sides argued over whose riot it was, the demonstrators or the police, when both sides clashed over the 1 a.m. curfew at Tompkins Square Park this weekend. The next day, the New York Times published an article on its front page. Park curfew protest erupts into a battle, and 38 are injured. Half a dozen injured civilians accused the police of violence in the article. The story describes the neighborhood that night as a war zone and writes, the violence was the apparent result of a police effort to help late-night noise and rowdyism in the park. Captain Gerald McNamara, the commander of the 9th Precinct and of the police detachment at the scene, defended the police. He said, I hope you saw what the hell was going on, because we didn't start this. We did everything in our power not to provoke an incident. They didn't charge the crowd until the bricks and bottles started flying. But a week later, the narrative leans toward the civilians. In another New York Times article by Howard French, the Columbia journalism professor we talked to, he and his two colleagues write, A review of nearly four hours of videotapes of the evening made by a neighborhood resident and not previously seen by reporters or the police together with accounts from a Times reporter and photographer on the scene, and more than a score of witnesses provides new insights into that night. It clearly details cases in which officers wore no badges or hit their badge numbers, clubbed and kicked bystanders for no apparent reason. 
It was Clayton Patterson's video. Clayton had just bought his camera days before the riot. All historical sounds of the scene you heard in this episode are from his video. Clayton remembers the riot like it happened yesterday, and how the media first described it as a melee. Melee is like a soft word. You know, I don't think if I was going to think of a really harsh word to describe a night of violence, I wouldn't use melee. Would you? No, not at all. It's kind of a a cute word. You know, riot. At least is riot. Police riot is even worse. The video from that night changed everything. At first, city officials were not very sympathetic to cries of police brutality during the Sunday morning riot in Tompkins Square Park. But that has changed now that the mayor and police commissioner have seen some home videos of what happened. There is some behavior that was captured on tape uh, that I think the individual officers that are involved are going to have some great difficulty explaining why they were using the amount of force that they were using at that particular time. There were also pictures, black and white photographers of cops in helmets raising their nightsticks frozen at the exact moment of the blow, and clear view of the camera's flash. People cringed in pain, their bodies crunched over the ground. I'd remember seeing a photo of his colleague in the papers. It was a, it was a clear picture, it was, it was like ridiculous. Like It was like he posed for it. I never forget saying something to him about it, like, how the hell did that happen? Like, would you pose for this thing? It was like- Ed wasn't kidding. The visuals were as clear as day. You could easily tell the badge numbers of the cops from the photographs. One of more than 50 allegations of police brutality stemming from the Saturday night incident. If this kind of thing goes unanswered, it increases the level of acceptable police violence. 500 people marched from St. Bridget's Church on the Lower East Side on the 9th Police Precinct three days after the bloody riot at Tompkins Square Park. When a police officer verbally or physically harasses, intimidates, touches, manhandles, beats citizens, God damn it, your civil rights are at stake. It was the first time the NYPD had to deal with publicity like this. And with all the evidence available for the public to see, There was a lot of pressure to hold the police accountable for what happened that night. And so, nine police officers were identified and disciplined. Six officers would face criminal charges. At least two were suspended. More went through internal NYPD trials. One of them was Ralph Grasso. And Ralph was in trouble. Ralph Grasso went back to work after the riot, just as normal. As an officer, his golden rule was to never mix work with his home life. But several months after the riot, that would be pretty much impossible. Where were you the first time you read your name in the newspaper? I was home. I was actually at my kitchen table, and my name was actually mentioned on the news. Yeah, it had my my name, my age, and where I lived. Didn't have the exact address, but it had, it had where I lived at the time, which was Middle Village. It was in the Daily News and the New York Times too. November 8, 1988, three months after the night of the riot. Officer Ralph Grussell, 23, 
of the Manhattan North Task Force and assigned to the 34th Prison in Washington Heights. Officer Russell faces charges of wrongfully jabbing a man, Timothy Hazel, in the back with a nightstick and then hitting him about the legs with it. The complaints also charge that he hit another man, Michael Rosenthal, about the head and the legs with his nightstick. And what went through your head? I was I was mad. I was really mad. And then I was like, wow, like, why would you put my name in the newspaper? I didn't do anything wrong. And saying I didn't do anything wrong. And did anyone in your family see it? Yeah, I mean, it's... Who saw it? My wife, my in-laws, my parents. What did they say? They were shocked. What did you tell your family, like, after your name appeared in the newspaper? When they asked you, hey, what, what, what happened? Well, I mean, they, they knew I was down there, so they, you know, this, I was like, listen, I don't know what those charges are, and then they, they came out afterwards. Ralph was being charged by the Police Department's Civilian Complaint Review Board. It's called CCRB. Basically, it's a group outside the police department responsible for investigating civilian complaints against the police. The board then decides whether or not to bring charges, and if they do, a trial is held in an administrative courtroom. Here is where the police commissioner has a final say in the punishment, not the judge. And the worst thing that can happen here is a police officer loses his job. And so, in this case, the CCRB decided to charge Ralph. What, what happened after? I got the charges after that, and then I, I got a lawyer from the uh, PBA at the time. The PBA is Patrolman's Benevolent Association. It's the police union and it provides counsel to officers who are charged by the CCRB. They actually showed up at my command. The charges showed up at my command. Yeah, it was my lieutenant and my sergeant that actually presented them to me. The CCRB report shows the date of Ruff's trial was December 28, 1988. The advocate's office was there from the police department. They had their, their side. The CCRB presented the civilian complaints against Ralph. They came from two men, Michael Rosenthal and Timothy Hazel. The officer was charged with hitting the complaints with a nightstick and for calling them a homophobic slur. And then Ralph had an opportunity to defend himself. It was sort of like a court trial, like, a, like being in a court. I was, uh, I was basically on a witness stand, pleading my side. And uh, my partner at the time testified on my behalf, saying that police officer Grasso didn't do any of that stuff. So you and your partner, or your your partner as the witness. Right. They Basically, how I cleared the block, how I cleared the corner, um, what time I got there. The, the standard questions, just like in any trial. Um, my, you know, what I what I observed, what happened while I was there, and that was it. It was literally 15 minutes, 20 minutes. It wasn't long at all. Ralph denies he ever hit or beat anyone. Even though it says differently, right? On the, on There's the no assault or anything, yeah. yeah. hundred and twenty-one complaints were filed against police after the night of the riot. We tried to get the details of the complaint against Rob from the night of the riot. We filed a request with the NYPD under the Freedom of Information Law. But after waiting months, all that came back were 11 complaints. None of them against Ralph Grussell. Ralph told us he was found guilty, but not of assault. He says he was found guilty of not letting an individual go back home to their property 
But still, that never appeared on any documents. According to Ralph, he was suspended for two weeks, and then he went back on patrol. We also tried to track down Michael Rosenthal and Timothy Hazel, the two men who made the complaints. We managed to narrow down 13 contact details and addresses for Timothy Hazel located in this country. After calling them all, we realized they were all disconnected. There were 440 officers at Tompkins Square Park the night of the riot. According to the CCRB report, not a single one came forward, quote, to volunteer evidence which would support allegations of misconduct. In the end, it was the video that incriminated the cops. The world is watching! Tonight, new video shows the initial arrest that led to George Floyd's death. When I first met Ralph Grasso in March, we sat at a park in Queens below a large statue of an angel. Engraved into the granite below are words from the Bible. Greater love hath no man who a man lay down his life for a friend. And this is in Luke. Um, it's a Bible verse from Luke. As we sat facing the water, our backs to the inscription, Ralph says it's funny we ended up here. It reminds him of being a cop. It's the same Bible verse he's heard at police funerals. And I still go to them today. Ruff Grosso worked in law enforcement for 36 years. As he looks back on his career, he has no regrets. I mean, I was blessed. Yeah, even the situations, the stuff that I went through made me um, a stronger person. Again, I've seen everything there is to see. I have. I would do it all over again. You know, I feel like I was put for that job to do what I was to do, and that's why I called it a calling. And I tried to do the best I could every day. This episode was reported, written, and produced by me, Lina Fansa, and me, Yu Chen Li. Joanne Farian is our executive producer and professor. Rachel Quester and Peter Leonard are our co-professors. Special thanks to Columbia Digital Libraries, Professor Dale Maharaj, Ron Kuby, Clayton Patterson, and Paul DiRinzio. Shoe Leather's theme music, Squeegees, is by Ben Lewis, Doron Zunez, and Camille Miller. Remixed by Peter Leonard. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our season four graphic was created by Leah Haidar.